1 Corinthians 15, I will start in verse 50 and work through 58. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. A counselor at the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, Ed Welch, he recently paraphrased an Anne Lamott quote by saying that, that his life could be summed up in two phrases. Two phrases sum up his life. Help, Lord, is the first phrase, and thank you, Lord, is the second phrase. And it's harder for me to think of a better explanation at the very core of the whole life experience of any redeemed person. I, I feel those words with him all the time. I, I feel, help, Lord, and thank you, Lord. Help, Lord, is the cry of need coming together with the hope of faith. Thank you, Lord, tells the story in brief that that cry has been heard and answered. Help, Lord, Thank you, Lord, is our whole life. We are fundamentally all need. There is no self-sourced sufficiency in you or in me. We are always, only, and ever dependency. Fundamentally, what is at the core true of us, maybe above all things, is that we are creature. We are not creator. We are dependent, not source. We're born this way. We come from the womb gasping and crying for air and food that we need to survive because instinctively we know we're born needers and we die this way. We don't leave this world because we don't need anymore. We leave it because even our capacity for receiving what we need is finally exhausted. 
And because of that, we can't even sustain the provision that's given in our need. Our neediness is not only true of us physically, though. More soberingly and more gravely, it's true for us spiritually. We're, we're born not just in physical need, but in grave spiritual need. Our enemy is not just physical death. It's spiritual death in sin. Our, our Lord tells us in his word that we are born before him, spiritually dead to him. We don't have a relationship of peace with him and of intimacy from him, of reconciliation with him when we come into this world. We're dead to him in that regard. And as we've seen in this letter, as we talked about last week, this is sourced in sin. Our, our very first father, millennia ago, cut himself off from God. And we were, in a sense, in him when that happened. And so, in cutting himself off from God, we were cut off from our only source of spiritual life. Goodness, love, and holiness. And, and again, as we talked about last week, since that first fall, mankind has only continued to suppress the truth about God as our only source. Remember last week we talked about what Romans 1 tells us, that in his unrighteousness, man is bent to suppress the truth about God as the only creator, as our only sustainer. Even though we see it plainly and we know it instinctually, plainly is the day that has been made. And in his place, we have put our hope in ourselves and in this world. To use the words of Romans 1, Paul says, we as a humanity have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. In our desire to be our own gods, we have traded God for the lie that we can find life in ourselves, in our own ways. We have no source apart from him. But in our denial of that, we, knowing that we have no source in ourselves, we find refuge in every other created place, people, pleasure, power, money, religion, worry, things good and things bad. This denial of God is not only a sad suppression of the truth of God and the truth of our God neediness, it's a sin against God. It's idolatry. It makes God justly angry at us. God's response to our idolatry is what the Bible calls wrath. This is just and holy and appropriate punishment. That's his attitude towards those who suppress the truth of him and deny their need for him. God is angry that his rightful rule is rejected, that the honor and thanks that is due him is refused him, and that the glory of his goodness and love is concealed instead of magnified. So now we're doubly in need, always rightfully dependent on God for life, even before our sin, we were always going to be dependent on him. Now, because of our sin, we are rightfully deserving of death, eternal rejection because of that. We are all need. 
dire need. But the good news this morning that Paul is bringing to a crescendo is that though we're all need, God is all giver. Though we're all dependents, God is all provision. And in his love, he gives to us what we do not have in us. This morning, Paul reinforces again to us that that God has done what only he could do for people that are in desperate need, who have nothing they can give him, naturally or spiritually. He has given. He is a provider, and he has given a victory over death. He has given us a victory over sin. He has provided it completely and comprehensively. There isn't any aspect aspect of God's gift of victory over sin and death that we could do for ourselves or earn for ourselves. We are all need. He is all giver. And he has begun in each of us that have come to Christ this victory over sin and death. And he will bring it to completion in each of us until it is full and it is final. And today's message is Paul's symbol crash at the apex of the song of victory. It's the grand finale of the victory that he's been singing and extolling this whole chapter. I want to try to walk it through in in two basic points I've kind of tried to use to articulate this. First, our experience of the victory. The symbol crash of the experience of this victory. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. The imperishable will put on, the perishable will put on imperishable and we will be changed. A day is coming, Paul says, when our present bodies will be transformed into an imperishable, indestructible, glorious, sinless body that is only ever and always capable of loving and enjoying and worshiping God fully and perfectly. That is only ever and always capable of loving and enjoying one another selflessly and joyfully. On that day, our salvation from sin and death that has begun will be forever fully complete. That day is coming. This will happen in a flash, Paul says. It will happen, he says, in the twinkling of an eye. This means what it sounds like. It will happen immediately when it happens. Our life right now is all about process. Sanctification is a process. That's why we call it, you might have heard, progressive sanctification. Right now we're in a place of growing in holiness. For nine months we grow in the womb. But in a few moments, that's over. And we're born. 
And so just as the heavens and the earth came to be by the command of God in an instant, something that, as we talked about last week, even science affirms, that the universe had a beginning that was instantaneous, explosive, brilliant, and unfathomably powerful. Just as your soul, your human soul, everyone's human soul, is created at the moment of conception in the womb of your mother, And just as if you know Jesus Christ, your new life in him was created the moment you first believed that he was your sin bearer by the gift of God. So in an instant, whether your body has been in the ground for 400 years or whether you happen to be, as Paul says, alive on that day, like walking around, your life will be transformed instantaneously. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives more detail. He says this, According to the Lord's word, these are the words he's saying, Jesus himself told me this. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede, that is, come alive before those who have fallen asleep. And That's a colloquialism for those who are already dead. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul says that the Lord's appearance will emerge in the heavens with a loud command. There will be an archangel's voice. There will be a trumpet blast. And I want to talk about this for a little bit because these are fantastical ideas to us. There's a trumpet. The trumpet signal, the idea of the trumpet has much Old Testament background. Trumpets were used, they were concrete, they were real all throughout history. In Jeremiah 5:21, in Jeremiah 51, the, the trumpet signals the Lord's judgment on Babylon. The trumpet in that place is a, is a poetic battle crawl for all nations to come against Israel's enemy. In Joel 2, the trumpet signals the great and dreadful day of God's judgment coming on the nations. In Isaiah 27, A trumpet blows, metaphorically, to gather God's people from foreign lands. And in all these images, we see a picture of what this last trumpet will signal. The final battle against sin and death will be decided. The judgment on those enemies will be realized fully in our personal victory. I mean, through Christ, but we will personally realize it fully. The gathering of God's people for the final stage of their rescue from the four winds of the earth mimics what Isaiah foresaw in his chapter. But, but all this begs the question, is, is a trumpet going to really sound in the air? I mean, we will, we will be, if we're alive on that day, we'll be walking through a parking lot and hear this heavenly, strange, blaring sound. I'm tempted to want to say that's too fantastical, that's too strange, it must be metaphorical. I don't think it is. And the reason I don't think that is because in the immediate context, it's in a sequence of literal phenomena that have to be true. 
that though the trumpet conveys the deeper meanings I just mentioned, I think the reason it has those deeper meanings is because it will be used on that day. And in, almost in a sense, the prophets are, are using the trumpet of that final day as a symbol for all kinds of judgments and all kinds of triumphs and all kinds of gatherings in the history of God's people. But in the sequence that Paul just lists, these momentous events are, are in some places, obviously literal. The Lord literally descends. Acts 1, the angel says, Why are you staring up into heaven to the disciples? This Jesus who went up into heaven, who really rose and went up into heaven, he will come down from heaven just as he went up. And I, I, it's almost as if the angel on that day knew that people were going to try to say the resurrection is just a philosophical resurrection. It's just a metaphor. It's just a great idea. They take the time to say, he is coming back just like he's going up. In a physical body. This Jesus will return just as he has gone up from you. In the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, it was literal angels that the shepherds saw. That frightened them. <laughs> Sorry. That, that wasn't on purpose, what I just said. But it, it, those were real angels the shepherds saw that freaked them out. It was a literal star that God sent to help explain what was going on. So departed souls in Paul's teaching here are literally coming into bodily form. Some are alive, some are dead. They're all coming together. So if all these other elements are concrete, then it points me to a literal heavenly blast of sound that will be earth-wide and discernible. We don't know when this will be. We, we briefly touched on some things like the fact that God's plan, we know, is for the gospel to go through the whole earth. For in some way that, that theologians argue about, there is going to be a final bringing in of all the Gentiles and a final bringing in of all of Israel. Second Thessalonians speaks of a great rebellion against God before Christ comes. A great rebellion or rejection of him, culminating in the appearance of what Paul calls a man of lawlessness, a singular figure who has been typified in all kinds of figures over history, emperors and Caesars and Napoleons and Hitlers. Paul says this man of lawlessness will lead many astray and the Lord will destroy him at his coming. The Lord talks about the age of his coming as one which we saw last week will, will be present with scoffing and the love of many growing cold because of lawlessness. There are people who love Jesus who see these things completely differently. They see much of what I just said as accomplished in, in the time of the apostles. I used to feel a lot more confident that I understood the sequence of end times things. It's not for lack of reading. I mean, I, I want you guys to know I have read for years about these things. But the more I'm more widely exposed to different perspectives on it, the more I'm challenged to, to really have a certain confidence of the sequence. I always go back to this sentence from Wayne Grudem that I always love. The future is very hard to predict, particularly because it hasn't happened yet. So godly, loving, true believers disagree on the timing, and that is okay. Because what is most clear from the larger material of Scripture is this. We will not know 
when he is coming. Over and over again in the Gospels and in the epistles, this is stressed. We will not know that day. It will be a surprise for everyone. Even to those who are faithfully waiting for his return, Jesus and the apostles tell us nothing more than this recommendation at the core. He says in Matthew 24, 44, you must also be ready. And why does he say we must be ready? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's talking to his apostles. He's not telling them, you'll be able to figure all this out with your charts and your sequencing and putting Revelation together with Thessalonians and putting that together with Matthew 24. You'll be able to nail it. No, he says, he, he, now, I'm, it is worthy of study. There is a lot to talk about that we won't talk about today. But after all of that truth, he says, he is coming when you do not expect. And therefore, he says, the emphasis is on being ready. The one thing we can know about the Lord's timing is that we will not know it. <laughs> It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. The phrase Jesus and Peter uses, it will be the thief in the night. It will be great loss and great fear for those not found serving and giving ourselves to his purposes who know the Lord. But for us who do know Jesus, who are seeking to follow him, that day will not be a day of judgment but of unfathomable joy and peace. And a, finally, like we have never known. And on that day, God will rescue our physical life from death and provide what only he can do through our resurrection from the dead. Paul says we will be changed. The perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When Moses asked to see God, he was told he could not see God fully, face to face, and live. The expression of God's glory that God would manifest to Moses if Moses was allowed to see it, God said, would kill him. And so he could only see a hint of it. When Paul saw the risen Lord with his eyes, his physical sight could not survive, and he was blinded. In Revelation 1, when John sees the ascended Christ in a vision, he falls down as if dead. Surely this man, John, who still knew his sin and his incompleteness, who still knew there were insurgents in his heart against the rule of God, fell in dreadful fear of God. Even as a saved man, he fell in dread of God's pure holiness. But on that day, we will be transformed. On that day, our eyes will not be blinded by his appearance. For it's his appearance itself will make us have new eyes that can see him. They'll be fit for seeing with joy and awestruck delight what now would only blind us. On that day, our bodies will not be destroyed by his glory. For our bodies will be made indestructible, perfect for dwelling in the inapproachable light of his glory. On that day, our hearts will not faint in dreadful fear. Because on that day, our new bodies will be spiritually and physically incapable of offending him in any way. Or of feeling the terror of our sin that engenders his displeasure. 
It won't be possible to be sad on that day. It won't be possible to be in dread on that day. For sin will be as fully and finally expelled from our bodies as we could ever conceive. Second point, the source of our victory. Paul says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus poured out his blood on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, he cried out, it is finished. That meant it is complete. That meant it is done with. In one very fundamental real sense, our victory was complete that day. He did give us the victory that day. When God nailed your debt of sin to the cross, as we've talked about before, he nailed all of it. Your sin yesterday and last year and before and your sin today and tomorrow and next year until the day you died. That's why the word of God says that on that day, God on that day disarmed the rulers and authorities, Paul says in Colossians. Those are the spiritual enemies of God. He disarmed them. And he, Paul says he made a public display of them in heavenly places. All the angelic hosts knew that Satan was defeated that day, that sin and death were defeated that day. Paul says he triumphed over them through Christ. So in one very fundamental and real sense, God triumphed over our sinful and satanic spiritual enemies that day. But, but on this day, this day that's still coming, the day of your full transformation into the image of God's Son, the day when you will not only no longer have to suffer, feelings of condemnation, feelings of failure, you will not be capable of feeling condemnation. For you, death, spiritually, physically, because of sin, even the possibility of sin will be impossible on that day. It will never, ever, ever again be a reality in your life or a threat to your future hope and peace. Ever. You were made for this. You were saved for this. That there would be a final, full salvation. Paul says, on that day, death has been swallowed up in victory. It's an allusion to a song in Isaiah. It cries out the same. Looking at the day from a few thousand years earlier than Paul, or seven centuries. So yes, Christ's death was already swallowed up in his resurrection, but your death has yet to be swallowed up in his victory. But it will be. 
And then Paul breaks out in a song. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sing? He's quoting there from Hosea. And what's so interesting about his quote of Isaiah here is that if you go back to the illusion that Isaiah is making, or Hosea is making there, where Paul begins to sort of paraphrase Hosea, it's, it's an allusion to judgment. Because of Israel's sin, God is calling death to victory, plagues and judgments upon them. And Paul takes it and he reverses it. He says, okay, there was judgment for sin. There was God's judgment for rebellion in that day. But in the day that's coming, the death, that is the victory of sin and rebellion, it will be overturned. So he says, where is your victory now, O death? Where is your sting now, O death? It's gone. And, and what I love about this is that Paul is, he's admitting that there's a terrible problem that have to be defeated if death is going to be defeated. He's saying our sins incur God's judgment. But there's coming a time where that's not going to be possible anymore. And so he says, where's your victory now? Death. Where's this victory that's, that you should have because of God's judgment upon us, because of our sins, because of our rejection, because of our rebellions? You were, you were supposed to have a great victory because those things are all true about us. But where's the victory now? He says, it's gone. It's been swallowed up. And he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. Paul says death is like a scorpion. At the end of that scorpion, there's a tail. At the point of that tail is sin. Death can only take us captive through transgression. The wages of sin is death. And so sin does death's work. It does Satan's work. Sin seduces. It lies. It makes false promises. And then once we've bought into it, it kills. It destroys. Destroys marriages. Destroys careers. Destroys relationships between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. Destroys friendships. Destroys churches. It brings death wherever it sows. It's evil. And it's in us. James describes it this way. Each person is tempted when he's lured, lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. The destruction of good things. Relationships, like I said, with each other. But worst of all, our relationship with God. But sin has a partner. It's an unwilling partner. But it's a partner nonetheless. Paul says... The sting of death is sin. And then he says this curious thing. The power of sin is the law. I love this. For a brief moment in this book, Corinthians, Paul goes Galatians on them. He goes Romans on them. He, 
they haven't really been battling with legalism as a major theme that, that it is in Galatians. But Paul is saying that there's a partner with sin that has to be, in some way, in a right way, disabled. And it's the law. Because the law gives sin its power. The commandment of God. This is very ironic. It's very life-saving if we understand this. The commandments of God, the good, holy, righteous, and true commandments of God. They, in a sense, give sin its power to kill us. Or death its power to make us sin, however you want to phrase it. Listen to what Paul says about the law in Romans 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul's not blaming the law. He says here, the law is holy and righteous and good. But when it becomes known in the heart of a sinful person, it wakes sin up. It arouses sin in the heart. And far from being able to save us or improve us, the law becomes like a knife in the hand of sin. The law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. When you hear that law, does it remind you how over the last 24 hours you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? If that's what it reminds you, number one, you're either incredibly amazing and you don't deserve to be on this earth right now because you should be at the right hand of the Father, or you're super deceived because none of us have done that in the last 24 hours. So the law clarifies to us what is right and what is wrong, but it gives no power to obey it. I mean, sure, we might obey God's command not to steal out of fear, losing our job, out of the threat of God's discipline in our lives. But as we begin to live on that fear and that threat, resentment grows, dread grows. And the love of God and the joy of love, the God that we're, that we're supposed to have, well, that, lo that law, love God, rejoice in him, they begin to become our judge because we fail to love him or enjoy him as we should. Paul says the law that said, do not covet itself was used by sin to increase his desire to covet. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us. And so through our sinful hearts, the law becomes a means of death. It says, do not covet. And in response, sin works covetousness in us. And then the law condemns us. 
It says, well, you must die for that coveting. The very commandment, Paul says, that promised life. If you live this way, things will go well for you. When we don't live that way, it says now you deserve guilt, condemnation, separation. We feel this in all kinds of little and big ways, don't we? We feel, that, we feel the echoes of this death every time we become conscious of sin. The law says, be merciful and you will receive mercy. And then we sin in a, in a word of anger at our child or at our spouse or our brothers and sister. The law says, be merciful and you will receive mercy. And then we sin. <laughs> and we realize we haven't been merciful. And so are we not going to receive mercy now? The law says, work for your master as unto the Lord with all of your heart. And in an afternoon of laziness, we steal from work as we gorge on social media. The law says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then we sin with a lustful gaze at, at who God says is not meant for us. And what follows? What follows are echoes of death. A sense of estrangement from God. A sense of his displeasure. A sense of our, our love for him in that dread becoming colder, an affection for him turned down, and then a desire maybe before or after or through it all to hide from God and to hide then from the things that remind us of God. His word and his songs and his friends that we have, they don't, they don't, they're not becoming as attractive to us as they were. And then ensues at the same time this desire to satisfy ourselves because we need something on the world without him the pleasures of this life, the worries of this life. And, and this cycle goes on and on and on. The heart starts to harden. And we're driven deeper into escape and to sin. The cycle goes on and on and on. What can the law do about all this? It's just, it, it's great, it's good, it's holy. But what can it do? It's law. It can command you. But can it empower you? It judges you. But can it forgive you? No, the same law that rightfully called for your heart to love God and be faithful to your creator who loves you. Now it calls for your separation from God. Remember again, there's nothing wrong with the law. It is God's law. It is holy, righteous, and good, but it cannot save you. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. For it judges us rightly and it condemns us justly. And then he says in verse 57 here, after all of that, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. The God whose law we have broken the God from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. It's a beautiful quote from the late R.C. Sproul. The God from whom we need to be saved has saved us. Jesus has saved us not only from sin, but from the law. 
He's paid the penalty of death that the law rightly demands from us. And having offered himself as our death for the laws we have broken, which the laws of God call for, our physical and spiritual death, separated from God for eternity, having offered himself to pay the penalty for that, the law can no longer ask anything of us. What, what more can you do than give your life to death for the penalty of the law? What more do you have to give the law than your life? You can't give anything more than your life because that's all that you have. And so when Jesus represented you on the cross and he gave all that he could give, his life to death for you, there was nothing more that the law could ask for. It is as if you indeed died to the law in his death. The scriptures use that language. We died with him. The law has exacted its payment upon you. You already went to the chair. You already went to the gallows. You went to the cross in Christ's crucifixion. This is what Paul means when he announces your freedom from condemnation this way. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And then he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. He doesn't say, who is there to condemn? You're better than that. Who is there to condemn? You shouldn't be condemned. You're a pretty good person. You struggle like everyone else, but you're a human. But, but hey, you don't deserve condemnation. No. He's not arguing that way. He says Christ Jesus has taken your condemnation. You did deserve condemnation. It's just that Christ Jesus has taken it all. If you think you don't deserve that, if, you, if, you, if that's a firm conviction in your heart, you don't need this cross. You don't need this judgment of God upon your life. Ask God to please open your eyes. None of us understands this fully. None of us sees our sin and God's holiness perfectly. But if our heart refuses to accept what we can see from God's grace, we need to beg God for mercy to open our eyes to our need for a Savior because he is a holy God and he will judge the world with equity and fairness. And those who, who have no Savior will not come out unscathed. But for us who have trusted Christ, that day of judgment has already come and gone. In Christ, we have died. We, our, our, our way of being accepted by God through the commandments of God and our obedience to the commandments of God, that, that is over. That is impossible to begin with, and, and that's not our relationship to God anymore. We are made right with God through what Jesus has done. He is our righteousness before God. That is why Paul says that the power of sin is in the law. But if Jesus has satisfied the law, then sin has no power over us, brothers and sisters. But there's another aspect to this victory God gives us. As we fight, struggle, and strive to hold on to the truth, 
that Jesus indeed has satisfied us, the law's demands against us. As we struggle to hold firmly to the gospel that says we are righteous before God against all the accusations of the enemy and condemnations of our conscience, that his blood and his life are fully sufficient for all of our sin. As we hold on to that, the Holy Spirit of God works power into our hearts that we might live law, we might live lives of love. He gives power to actually live lawfully, which is synonymous with saying he gives power to actually live lovingly because that's the top of the law, right? Love God and love people. And he gives us power. All this comes from God. That's why Paul says he gives the victory. Every aspect of the victory comes from God. Our salvation from sin, from the law's condemnation, and from our own weakness to do what is right. Salvation and victory from our own inability and powerlessness to live for God. He gives us victory over this. He gives it. That's what Paul just said. He says, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. We're all need. He is all giving. (laughs) And I want to stress this because it's so, as I prepared for this message and I got to that phrase, he gives the victory. I, I sensed a burden that we might really embrace this and believe this and hold on to this. He gives the victory over death and over sin. And we taste and experience at least in part that victory even now while we wait for its fullness. He gives it. You don't earn it. You don't achieve it on your own. He gives it. He doesn't keep it from you, by the way. He gives it. On that day, he will prove his faithfulness by giving a victory over sin and death, the likes of which you can only dream of now. But now, even today, even today, he gives victory. You who are weary in your battle with sin, I want to encourage you, he gives victory. You who are weary in your fight to keep believing in Christ, he gives victory who are straining to love against your instincts of selfishness. He gives victory. You who are wondering if you will make it to the end to be able to see him and hear him welcome you, that you will not hear, I never knew you. You lied to yourself. I never knew you. Who fear hearing that who wonder if you will really be able to hear, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hear Paul's words. He gives the victory. So now I don't mean let go and let God. If you're hiding in sin, confess it to him and beg him for help. Confess the truth, yes, of of God's word that you might remember you're called to serve the Lord and not your sinful desires. Yes, 
pray to him and rely on his promises. Don't ignore his correction when he brings it into your life. Yes, seek the help of other brothers and sisters and walk in the light with them. Build them up even as you're receiving build up from them. Be in fellowship with each other. Give yourself to the study of his word where his food comes from and to prayer where he longs to hear you and understands your weaknesses. Yes, seek to obey God as well as you can. I don't hear me not saying what I'm not saying. Yes, remember and recall and reflect on and hide his truth in your heart that you might not sin against him. There are many means of experiencing the victory that he gives us, but I feel it's really important for us all to make sure we are hearing and relying on this truth. He gives the victory. That we're relying on that truth more than, more than anything we do to experience that truth. There is a passage in Philippians 1. It says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out, not for, but it says work it out with fear and trembling. Now, what Paul means by fear and trembling is not always easy to understand. He doesn't mean work it out with terror and literally feeling anxiety that like, like shakes you to your core. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians, he said that he commended them because they received Timothy in a way that encouraged Timothy. And the way they received Timothy, Paul calls it this. He says, you received him with fear and trembling. Obviously, they weren't acting like Timothy was God. They were revering Timothy as Paul's delegate because Paul was God's apostle. And they received him meekly and humbly as someone they should look to for direction from God and someone they should follow for how to walk with God. And so when he says work out your faith or your salvation with fear and trembling, this means that we should work out the salvation that God has given us with a reverence with a sober attitude and an honoring attitude because of the preciousness of the salvation from sin and eternal judgment that our holy God has given us. It's the heart of a reverence towards God at the awesome privilege of now being his child, saved from real wrath that is really coming upon the world that is grave and awful. It's reverence. It's not terror. It's not dread of God. And this word trembling, remember, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It speaks to the weakness we feel in ourselves. The imperfections and inabilities we feel in ourselves that cause us to depend and cleave to and lean on and rely not on ourselves, not on our moral fortitude or moral strength, but it causes us to, to depend and cry out for and lean on the power that comes from God to love him and to love others because he's good and because he's kind. And so the trembling speaks to the acknowledgement that, God, I know you want me to love you, but I can't do it without your help. 
I know you want me to follow you, but I can't do it without your help. I need your help. It's a trembling of, of, a, of an understanding of our weakness. And, and that's why this fear and this trembling, this reverence for God, what he's done for us, and this trembling for God that acknowledges our weakness, that's why Paul follows it with this promise. He says, for it is God who works in you to will, to even desire. And then he says, and to act according to his purpose. Because he gives the victory. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He gives the victory. And sometimes the victory doesn't come in the shape and the size we think it will. I remember an occasion where I was struggling in a way that might sound simple to you, but I think is really important. I was struggling to go to bed. I was really enjoying scanning through news and articles and stupid trivia about movies. And, and I was just stuck in this. And I asked God to just help. And, and, and a lot of times in those moments, I've, I will feel God's help immediately. He'll do something. But that night, I, I didn't sense his help. And, and this was a real cry of my heart. Like, I, I understand there are consequences for my family and for my church if I stay up too late. And I was asking God for help. And I didn't feel the help, and I stayed up too late, and I eventually went to bed. And I... I was really perplexed. God, where were you? Something happened two days later. I was in a place of incredible weakness. I had made some big mistakes that I didn't intend to. And I had a meeting and I had to present some things at this meeting. And I had left my notes in the wrong place. And it was a really important meeting. And I asked God for help. And I won't go into the details, but the help was immediate, and it was miraculous. God brought facts and data to my mind that I cannot remember on my own. It was incredible. Like, I have the worst memory in the universe now. Like, my kids and lack of sleep, everything's stolen my short-term memory. I, and I remembered all this stuff that I had, I had looked at and studied and prepared and notes and notes. And it was just a miracle of God. And I, and I was like, what, God? And I went back to God. I was like, okay, why did you help there and you didn't help last night? And, and, and I felt... In my prayer, what the Lord was saying to me was, Albert, I did help you the other night. See, in my word, I say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The other night, you just didn't want to work. You didn't want to do any work. And if I had helped you in the way you were asking for, all I would have done was enable your sloth. And so I did help you the other night. I gave you a victory because now you know I, I, I'm calling you to make every effort, as he says in 1 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 1. 
I want you to make some effort. You're not going to earn anything. But it was God's discipline that had to work in my heart to, to ask me to make that effort. So what I'm trying to say is the victory doesn't always look like how it's going to look. One day it looks like God is making you wait a little bit longer, making you feel your inadequacies a little bit longer, making you experience some of the reality of your fallenness a little bit longer. Another day it will look like an immediate watershed of help. You can't tell him how he's going to do it, but don't stop asking him to do it. Don't stop trusting him to do it. When it doesn't look like it's come the way you want it yet, don't give up on him. He gives the victory. Ask. And you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Do not give up. He gives the victory. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So don't give up even though you're struggling with sin, because grace abounds all the more. He has loved you with a very long-term love. He has loved you with a significant amount of time of love. He has loved you with a love that will last for years. No, he has loved you with an everlasting love. So don't give up because he gives the victory. He is able to save to the really far those who come to God through him. No, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He gives the victory. Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let us not give up, for he gives the victory. Let's pray. Lord, give us strength through these words, through your promise of victory to endure. You who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let that not be an invitation to license or legalism. Let it be a rest that depends on you for strength. Let it be, Lord. Let us encounter the beautiful paradox of following you, Jesus but not depending on our following of you, but on you. Please, Lord, let us have that maturity of knowing what it is to seek to obey you, but not rely on our obedience, but on you and what you've done. Pour out more and more grace in our lives to understand this, to embrace it, and to walk in it. Fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh. Give us power that we might testify that by grace we are what we are. 
Even if we say this grace is not in vain, let us say the grace of God, though, is what has given me the victory. Help us, Lord God, for it is you who must work and must will in our hearts to bring about your purposes for our lives. And thank you that one day this victory that we feel so often in starts and stops will be full and complete and final on that day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.